great segue, sir. This yes. is hell. All right, then. And it sounded like hell. Wow, the music's way high. Uh, you sounded like you were having a horrible experience over there before the show, Alex. What was going on? Uh, I'm trying to figure out what an error overflow is. <laughs> that does not sound good. No, not if we want the show to be recording. <laughs> also, uh... When I went to Google this morning to go to Google Docs and print out my script for this morning, it said I could not connect to the internet and that Google was not a site that could be found. So things were <laughs> starting off spectacularly after a week off. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Now, knowing you, you probably know all about Brazil's Supreme Court overturning the results of the Lava Jato anti-corruption operation, in essence ruling that the anti-corruption effort was in itself corrupt. But I am telling you, the vast majority of your family, friends, neighbors, co-workers have no clue that the U.S. across presidential administrations, both Democratic and Republican, gave bipartisan support to working with members of Brazil's former junta in order to overthrow the democratically elected leaders of Brazil. And not only one, but two. Two in a row. Two people were elected president, and U.S. interference led to both being thrown out of office on trumped-up and Obama'd-up corruption charges. The U.S. Justice Department and FBI worked with Brazil's far, far right to use, exploit, and weaponize the law to legitimize what turns out to be nothing more than a military coup. Brazil's far right and U.S. business interests and their allies in government combined their forces to corrode justice so democracy would crumble. And it's not only in Brazil that there appears to be blowback to the U.S. war on democracy that has been raging since the 1990s when the pink tide of leftist governments were elected to stop the, last, the latest colonial project of the United States that being neoliberalism. In Bolivia, the person behind the coup that overthrew Evo Morales has been arrested for her role in overthrowing the government. <clears throat> sure, Western media sees this as a stifling of dissent, but they also still believe her military coup was democracy in action. So what are you going to do? Then there's the UN report condemning U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. The study finds that Venezuelans have lost 99% of their income due to U.S. sanctions. But whether it's how the U.S. helped overthrow two consecutive democratically elected leaders in Brazil, or the role the U.S. played in a military coup in Bolivia, or how it is starving and killing the people of Venezuela. Most of the people you know have no freaking idea how cruel, brutal, exploitative, and uncaring U.S. policy is in Latin America. Why? Because U.S. colonialism in South America is to, quote, protect U.S. business interests, still, and that still gets bipartisan support. And if it gets bipartisan support, then it's not debated. And if, if it's not deba debated, it's not reported in the media. Without disagreement, issues become non-issues in the U.S. press, and you and I cannot vote colonialism out of office. See? Democracy works. We'll find out how it has not worked out for the people of Brazil in a few when we have the return 
of This Is Hell correspondent Brian Muir. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. Brian's most recent writing includes the Brazil Wire article Lava Jato Dies Lula is reborn behind the Supreme Court ruling, and Eduardo Bolsonaro War Council visit triggers investigation on a crazy connection between the Bolsonaro family and the January 6th U.S. Capitol siege. So this is going to be a very revelatory interview. Last time we talked with Brian was back in January when we were discussing his new documentary, Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's Neoliberal Agenda, which is available through Redfish Docs, and you can find on YouTube. You can find our last five years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com when you search on Mirror, and you can follow on Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Talisur and find Brazil Wire at BrazilWire.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how have you been? Oh, pandemic's over. <laughs> uh, I, me and my kid ate jelly beans out of those little quarter turn slots at the uh, entrance to a Home Depot, uh-huh. and we're doing fine. So I think uh, I've done no masks anymore. You just made me spit up my coffee. <laughs> those things scare me even when there isn't a pandemic. I figured that those things are some sort of... Uh, molecular display of an actual virus that's what they kind of look like to me or they're growing viruses in those plastic tubes it was worth it yeah i'm sure it was are you going to be doing the granola out of the uh bundled thing as well at uh, trader joe's or whatever i have more respect for myself than eating granola <laughs> i have a tip uh suggestion a bit of advice let's just call it a recommendation if you are planning on making a public appearance of any kind, some sort of live performance for an audience. Do not, I repeat, do not schedule back-to-back Zoom calls with family members that last almost six hours to commiserate about the passing of a beloved family member, staying up until midnight doing so, and then going directly to bed without doing any kind of processing of what you just went through. Because I can tell you from my own personal experience, last Sunday night, You will wake up in the middle of the night, an emotional wreck that makes it impossible for you to sleep or do anything but think about the person you and your family just lost. And that is no state of mind to be in when you are doing something like like this, a live stream radio show podcast. So my apologies to everyone who tuned in last week, only to find out that there was no show. And thanks to everyone for your very, very kind condolences. I truly appreciate them. More important than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell, which is rolled over from last week's question from hell, is so. What's the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? And please don't put your own name in the podcast title because then I will never listen to it. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff: our trucker's cap, our our trucker's hat, our winter cap, our tote bag, uh, t-shirts, everything. You can see it, our, our coffee mug. You can see it on our website right now when you go to thisishell.com and you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question out on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what is the name of your podcast? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. 
this week's hangover cure is vodka. According to the Healthline article, Hair of the Dog, Can Drinking Alcohol Cure Your Hangover? Question mark. Choosing alcoholic beverages with low amounts of, uh, oh, I should have read this one in the last <laughs> week I had, congeners. Yes. Conjurers. Congeners. Congeners. May help reduce hangover severely, uh, severity. Highly distilled spirits like vodka have the lowest amounts, while darker spirits like whiskey and bourbon have the most. Studies show that choosing vodka over all these forms of alcohol can lead to less severe hangovers. However, the amount of alcohol consumed has a much greater impact on hangover severity than the type of alcohol consumed. All that said, the Healthline story states that the hair of the dog remedy is not recommended. The only guaranteed way to avoid a hangover is to not drink or drink in moderation. So that makes this week's hangover cure. If you're trying to cure your hangover with hair of the dog that bit you, try vodka. That makes this week's hangover cure vodka. Vodka. Oh, what a wonderful hangover cure. I tried that once. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible Really stupid business model. This is hell, and if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at Completely Listener Supported. This is hell. One way you can contribute is by becoming a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell, sign up, and you'll get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot hear or find anywhere else online but on Patreon. On our most recent Patreon podcast, we shared yet another of our interviews, the late, great Howard Zinn. This one was from 2007, and Howard was on to talk about, among other things, how citizens sadly become something called a politician, unrecognizable from the citizen once they are elected into office. It's like they go through some kind of Republican, that's small r Republican, transubstantiation, but instead of getting some wine and bread out of the deal, we get pandering and corruption. And during my monologue, I gave my review of the last week's shows. It was another This Week in Hell, and what I got out of our most recent week of shows is more than likely not what you got out of the show. For instance, despite talking to Miriam Kaba, a leading voice for prison abolition, Ruth Milkman, who has made significant contributions to the study of labor and labor movements, and Kathy Kelly, an internationally renowned peace activist who actually set up camp between the warring factions in both of the Iraq wars. Despite a conversation about how po police and policing cannot be reformed, a discussion on the immigrants currently at the border who are not coming for jobs but fleeing from violence in their home countries, perpetuated by U.S. foreign policy of imposing neoliberalism upon every vulnerable nation, and a talk detailing the brutality and cruelty of the many ongoing U.S. wars, the moment that had the most impact on me during our last week of shows was that email from listener Courtney asking for advice on how she can live a life that is not complicit in capitalism. Courtney does not want a lifetime spent every morning looking at her oppressor in the mirror. And despite learning from three incredible guests for whatever reason, what stuck with me most? Probably because in a way Courtney's question is the question from hell for all of us every day was Courtney's email. But you can only hear why Courtney's question and email had such an effect on me, such an impact, and how both were at the heart of all of the conversations on our last week of new shows by subscribing to thisishell.com on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Listen to our exclusive Patreon podcast every Friday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast shortly after. Again, patreon.com slash thisishell. And the monologue must have been 
at least adequate because I think for the first time ever in the history of this show, I got an email from Jeff Dorchin wanting a copy, audio and text version of the monologue from Patreon last week, the last time we did a Patreon podcast. So uh, must be at least somewhat good. Coming up, the plot by Brazil's far right in concert with U.S. assistance to overthrow democracy has been declared illegal. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? And we will tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Brazil's democratically elected President Lula da Silva was removed from office due to the outcome of an anti-corruption probe. That same anti-corruption operation was then used to throw the next democratically elected leader of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, out of office. Lula was eventually jailed for his alleged crime, keeping the very popular president from running for president again. And office, every poll showed Lula would likely win with overwhelming support, which all led to the presidency of the far-right Jair Bolsonaro, all with U.S. support and interfering with Brazil's elections. But now, finally, Brazil's courts have ruled the whole corruption crackdown was illegal and all charges must be dropped, which means that it is very likely the anti-neoliberal socialist Lula will soon be Brazil's president again. That is, unless the U.S. yet again can interfere in another country's election. Returning to This Is Hell to talk about something that nobody's talking honestly about in the U.S. media, Brian Muir is an editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Uh, doing much better after taking a week off. Thank you for rescheduling. I really appreciate it, my friend. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. So it's good to have you back. Good to be on the air. Thank you. So I wanted to give a, I wanted to mention a hangover cure. I mean, that would be a break of protocol, probably for this is hell. Well, uh, you have signed many contracts with us, and we do know that you are very strict with protocol. So please tell us your hangover cure. It's Mike Royko's. Have you ever mentioned it? No. Mike Royko said, he said, it's not a cure, but it helps. Cradling your head in your hands and moaning gently. <laughs> that is a good hangover cure. So, uh, Brian, before we get to Brazil, as Common Dreams reported uh, 10 days ago, the far-right Bolivia coup leader Janine Añez was arrested on terrorism and sedition charges, but other outlets had the story as the stifling of dissent. Is this bringing justice to someone who attempted and succeeded at a coup, or is this a threat to freedom of speech and thought? How do we draw that line between a coup and dissent? Well, Juan Guaido's wife uh, is saying it's sexism that she was arrested. <laughs> so, so it must be sexism, despite the fact that she ordered the murder of 50 indigenous activists during during protests and you know cracked down on labor had a labor union leaders and journalists beaten and arrested and things like that it's sexist to arrest her i guess um according to juan guaido's wife who's it's probably sexist for me not to remember her name off the top of my head but i don't really pay that much attention to the guaidos this just stuck out on my mind in twitter no i think it's very important that she was arrested um and you know uh 
one of the problems, I think, with Venezuela is that they've been too soft on people who throw coups, right? And I think Brazil was also too soft on the military dictatorship when the dictatorship ended. They, in Brazil, they basically just let all of the official... There were two official political parties during the dictatorship. They were both collaborators with this neo-fascist dictatorship. They were all allowed to stay in office in Congress and the Senate. And so these two parties that collaborated with the neo-fascist dictatorship maintained control of the House and Senate well into the Lula years. It was one of the reasons why his government was not as far left as you know some people would have wanted it to be. They only had the PT only had 22 percent of the House. Yeah. So that, do you think that this is a good sign for uh, Bolivian justice, for justice in Latin America in general? Or do you think that this is yet again just going to be overpowered by the power of the right? And again, justice will not be served. I think in this case, justice is already being served. I think it's a really positive sign. And I think what's happening in Bolivia is really inspiring for you know people around Latin America right now. So I think it's very positive. Even if, you know, she's what let's be realistic here. She's probably not gonna spend that much time in jail. But even if she spends a couple years in jail, it's very important. You know, uh, it's very important that these far right wing white supremacist, you know, terrorist coup plotters understand that they don't have impunity. But they, you know, in in Agnes's case, she tried to flee to the U.S. and the U.S. wouldn't even help her. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, it just shows you first of all that if you're collaborating with the U.S., they're not going to help you out when things get tough. They're going to abandon you. And secondly, uh, there's some places in Latin America where there's still justice being delivered for people who commit treason, like she did. That's what I was going to ask you about this this idea of committing treason, and this can get to the Lavajado thing as well. But I, I want to just kind of wait on that for a second. But to what degree is this seen by even mem- people on the right uh, that these are actions that could be seen as treasonous actions? Being you know, having the United States help uh, Bra- uh, the Brazil's far right to overthrow two consecutive democratically elected presidents, uh, how? does the right not see that this is an act of treason or are they seeing this as treason as treasonous acts well you know like in the case of brazil it wasn't too i mean dilma Rousseff was illegally impeached but you know there's a legalistic rhetoric around it you know i've heard people on the right say well you know impeachment's never really about the actual crime committed it's always political her popularity was low blah 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 it went through a, it followed procedure even though the reason the 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 um crime the alleged crime that she was later exonerated from that she was impeached over was not an impeachable offense it was an infraction it's like impeaching someone for a parking ticket or something i mean literally an infraction you know, infractions in the U.S. carry what? The maximum fine is like $300. She was impeached for an infraction that she was exonerated from. However, the people on the right say, well, they voted, you know, they voted in Congress, they voted in the Senate, they voted to impeach her, so that's not treason, right? Even though we kind of know it was. In Lula's case, he wasn't 
removed from office. He was arrested to prevent him from being elected president. And um, in that case, I feel like in both cases, I feel like you could build a charge of treason against some of the people who plotted to make these things happen. In Lula's case, I think the case for treason is stronger, especially when you see the results of Bolsonaro in power essentially calling the elderly. I mean, there, there's now audio that's been released of an, an advisor to his economics minister, Paulo Geddes, who studied at University of Chicago under Milton Friedman in the 1970s and lived in Pinochet's Chile for a decade. One of his advisors talking about how much money the federal government would save on pension payments, which is like the Brazilian version of Social Security, if a lot of old people died. You know, and so now the landless workers movement, the MST has calculated that at 70% of the of people who died from COVID-19 in Brazil being over the age of 60, that the federal government is now saving 121 million reais a month in pension payments. And so people are building up, people are beginning to call this like genocide. And so knowing what we know, that Lula was illegally imprisoned, the case has all been thrown out against him, and that the prosecutors who are working closely with the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice have been caught talking on Telegram to each other, talking about how they were praying to God that Bolsonaro would win the election. Um, you know, I think you could build a treason case against them. And I, you know, I'm not going to say they're guilty before a trial, but I definitely think they should be put on trial for treason. They're under investigation for breaking the law, you know. So that's my opinion about it. Well, and, I, and I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I just wonder what impact that has on, you know, their supporters seeing them as truly nationalist, you know, like if they they push this idea of, of wrapping themselves in the flag, they push this idea of patriotism, and then they take this action while in office that you were saying, you know, could be an argument for treason. And so I just wonder how, what an impact that has on their rhetoric. Well, we see the right fragmenting and it's, you know, let's face it, the uh, conservatives, uh, a lot of them are just opportunists. And if they sense that the winds are changing direction, they'll bail. And we see a lot of Brazilian conservatives attacking each other, stabbing themselves in the back. Some of Bolsonaro's biggest you know, political supporters have jumped ship. And now a lot of um, the Brazilian center right that supported his coming to power has broke from him. And there's even some infighting in the military, apparently. So I think that I think that some conservatives or a lot of conservatives, traditional Brazilian conservatives, who are like polite fascists, who use like polite rhetoric, use code words instead of openly racist comments, they knew they were making they knew they were being hypocritical and supporting Bolsonaro and supporting the process that removed Lula from the elections, but they figured it would be better than having a return to social democracy. And so they kind of like betrayed their very weak sense of like liberal values and supported Bolsonaro. And now they're regretting it because uh, they're afraid they're going to get COVID. 
<laughs> so you write that after last month's Supreme Court ruling that all six terabytes of telegram conversations you were just mentioning obtained by hacker Walter Delgatti in the so-called Operation Spoofing were admissible as evidence in the triplex apartment case against Lula, something had to be done to stop the bleeding. And you explain the triplex case. None of the charges against Lula had any material evidence. They were all based on coerced plea bargain testimonies by jailed businessmen who, in every case, changed their stories multiple times before receiving partial illicit asset retention, greatly reduced sentences, and transferred to house arrest. In the triplex apartment case, the Supreme Court Justice Morrow was forced to sentence Lula for indeterminate acts of corruption because no material evidence was ever produced showing that Lula had owned or slept in the apartment or that the alleged illegal reforms had taken place. Furthermore, prosecutors were unable to establish any quid pro quo because the alleged benefits took place years after Lula left political office. Now, this has never made any sense to me, Brian. How did the people tolerate Guilt without evidence, being charged with indeterminate crimes, crimes that showed no benefit to the alleged criminal. Was the public simply unaware of the legal shortcomings or is Brazil's right that powerful or popular? Well, Chuck, uh, one of the tactics of lawfare, you know, as laid out by Lula's defense lawyers and the legal scholar Rafael Valing in a recent book titled Lawfare, one of the tactics is to make everything so confusing that journalists can't really explain things properly, so they end up just repeating what the prosecutors are saying. And this is what happened in U.S. coverage. Like, uh, And to be able to explain exactly the case they mounted against him would take up the entire article. So they're just saying, oh, he was convicted, he was convicted of corruption, he was convicted of money laundering. They don't explain, like, no article in the New York Times ever explained, except for one op-ed piece by um, Mark Weisbrot, who's, you know, great. Uh, not, none of the other 37 articles explained, for example, that the judge who oversaw the investigation and ruled what evidence could be admitted and what evidence couldn't be admitted in the trial, including 73 defense witnesses who he refused to allow to testify at the trial, you know, he was then allowed to rule over the trial. So he, he ruled over the investigation, rejected all of the evidence of the defense, and then ruled on it in a trial with no jury. You know, like that, you would never know that from reading US papers. But Lula was convicted in a trial with, with no jury by the same guy who oversaw his investigation, who had all of the personal interest in guaranteeing that Lula would be convicted because he was already being transformed into a superstar in the international media before the case even went to trial. Before the case even went to trial, Time magazine named him as one of the 100 personalities of 2016. Notre Dame University Law School invited him to give the keynote speaker address at the graduation ceremony. You know, he was flying around to universities. He was at Harvard being treated like a hero before he'd even ruled on the case. Then it was always like, this is the guy who's going to put Lula in jail. And, and so, the, I mean, there's all this stuff that, and, and the, the, the reason it was thrown out is also being misrepresented in the media, even on CNN, which I thought Christina on Amanpour, sorry about my pronunciation. I thought she did an okay job on that 
interview with Lula recently, but, you know, they're still saying like, oh, she was like, Lula, your case was thrown out on a technicality, right? It's not really a technicality. The case was thrown out because, uh, because the prosecutors and the judge broke the law. They, they illegally forum shopped this case to a court in a neighboring state that had no jurisdiction whatsoever, simply because that prosecutor's office was working in collaboration with the U.S. Department of Justice with no evidence. So it's not just like a technicality. No, they, it was thrown out for being illegal. All, like all evidence, all charges are thrown out. And they're also saying in the newspapers now that, um, you know, like, well, all they did was change the jurisdiction of the case against Lula. No, because now the, the, the Supreme Court Justice Edson Fashion said they could try him in Brasilia District Court if they want in the future. But what his ruling says is that in order to do that, they would have to redo the entire, they'd have to make up new charges and they'd have to redo the entire pre-trial period in which an independent judge rules on admissibility of evidence. And the evidence from the leaked telegram conversations has already been ruled admissible by the Supreme Court. But then the, the judge in Brazil would have to go back and individually rule on each one of those 73 defense witnesses. But it was all just people saying, yeah, Lula never lived there. He never lived there. He never owned the apartment. <laughs> you know, that would have to be all deliberated on again. And that if that's done properly, that's, that would take years to go through the mountain of evidence they presented. So it, it, it's still a case in which they're not like the journalists know so little about the case. They're not even asking the right questions. You know, uh, Valeska Martins, who's one of Lula's defense lawyers, she's a real hero in this entire process, because when when they illegally froze all of Lula and his family's assets, like three years ago, the defense team kept working pro bono on this. And um, she was on Democracy Now! last week. And um, she told me afterwards, like, she was happy with the interview and stuff, but she wished they'd ask better questions because, like, people just, people don't, there's so little written on the case and everything that people are still treating it as if Lula was actually seriously, you know, like, on trial for corruption or something, which is just outrageous. You write that Supreme Court investigations were underway against former judge-turned-justice minister Sergio Moro and Lavajado task force leader Dalton Delignal. If allowed to proceed based on the compromising conversations implicating Minister Fatshin, who you were just talking about, published in The Intercept, there is a good chance that he could have become further compromised. This explains why one of the most sympathetic Supreme Court ministers to the entire Lava Jato investigation made the decision to drop all charges against Lula in a ruling which weakened the investigations against Moro and Dallagnol. How does dropping the case against Lula, how is that good for Moro and Delignal? I don't, I don't quite understand how that benefits um, both Moro and Delignal. Okay, well, Chuck, you know, first of all, the, the Intercept just released a very tiny amount of the leaks, and the hacker is now facing a 300-year prison sentence, in a, which reminds me of what happened with Reality Winter. Reality Winner, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to say that. Uh, so a lot of the new information is coming out from the defense team. They have access to a much greater quantity of leaks and things like that. So basically, 
There was a leak that The Intercept published in which Dalek Noel, the chief prosecutor of Lava Jato, just like yelling with excitement about how this judge in the Supreme Court, Edson Fashion, is on their side. He's in their pocket. He had dinner with them the night before, blah, blah, blah. He's going to rule against Lula. Um, so that's compromising, right? Now, um, as these six terabytes of leaks got to the defense team, they started releasing some really incriminating stuff about, to the media and stuff, about some of the Supreme Court justices. Like um, promising people in the military that they're going to keep Lula in jail for the election season and stuff like that. The Supreme Court was pretty much obligated to start an investigation into prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, the minute that the telegram leaks were admitted as evidence in the Lava Jato case. So from what I understand, the fact that the case has been thrown out means that the investigation that was linked to the case into Sergio Moro and Dalton Dalgno has also been thrown out. So there's other um, investigations underway against them, but the actual one that was being conducted by the Supreme Court got canceled at the same time that the charges against Lula were dropped. When it comes to the Times coverage, I know that you're really critical of it, but is it possible? <laughs> You've yes, I have. Uh, is it possible the New York Times simply did not know what was taking place, that they were just unaware of what was happening? And what would explain that lack of awareness, that lack of recognition of the corruption within the Lava Jato operation that you could clearly see, but people who write for places like the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, they couldn't see it. Well, you know, like I could say it's all some giant conspiracy and, you know, they did it all on purpose, but I feel like journalists are paid less and less. And a lot of them are just like freelancers who might be getting $500 for an article from one of the big papers, a lot of papers pay even less. Um, so, the, I mean, there's a couple factors at play. I'm sure there's editorial decisions that were made um, to put any kind of defense of Lula or the PT during this period at the bottom of the articles, kind of, and things like that. But uh, it's important to note that um, the minute uh, that Sergio Moro and Dalegno and Lava Jato team dropped Petrobras-related corruption charges against Lula in 2016, uh, which was the legal justification they used to move the case to Curitiba, where the apartment was not located, where Lula had never lived, a neighboring state, blah, blah, blah. The defense team filed a motion for dismissal due to illegal forum shopping and held press conferences about it. In fact, the def Lula's defense team was holding press conferences explaining all of this stuff about how Moro was allowed through a loophole in Brazilian law dating back to the Inquisition to rule on the own investigation that he oversaw. You know, they're explaining all of this stuff in minute detail in weekly press conferences for like five years. And what uh, Valesca told me when I met her a couple months ago, was that uh, none of these journalists ever went to any of their press conferences. So, like, 
None of the foreign correspondents from the New York Times, The Guardian, anything ever went to the defense team's press conferences for five years of the former president, you know, the most successful president in Brazilian history who has been unjustly targeted in this kind of witch hunt, which we all now know is illegal. Then when I say none, maybe once or twice someone showed up. But normally, no Anglo journalists would go to any of these press conferences. So what you see in the 37 New York Times articles I read analyzing how they treated Lula's case and Lava Jato and all of this stuff is what they would do is they would take words of the prosecutors and repeat them at the top of the articles. And a lot of times the information they're repeating from the prosecutors is, is incorrect. For example, in The Guardian, two days before Lula was arrested, they said he had been convicted of involvement in an 88 million real Petrobras graft scheme. This is a, was a charge in the original case used to justify moving it to Curitiba. It was dropped a week after they moved the trial, you know. So they, so they would repeat the words of the prosecutors for the first three quarters of an article. And then they'd have some U.S. academic come in and say why the case is important, blah, blah, blah. And then the last paragraph of the article, they'd say, well, Lula's defense lawyer says he's innocent of all charges. Or the president of the PT party, Glazy Hoffman, says that Lula is the victim of an unjust witch hunt. But they wouldn't explain the arguments. They would just run these kind of like platitudes at the end of these articles. So anyone reading the article would think, oh, well, he's got to be guilty of something. And so in this sense, they, the New York Times contributed to normalizing the rise of a fascist in Brazil who is now responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. How does U.S. support for the far right, the more undemocratic forces in Brazil affect the way Brazilians think of the United States and how, how does it make them feel about democracy? Is it just like the people on the right are still supportive of the United States because they view it as uh, their savior and their guardian and people on the left view them as their colonial overlord? How, how does U.S. support for the undemocratic, uh, for the far right in Brazil affect the way that Brazilians view the U.S.? Well, Chuck, you know, like, I'm sure we're almost the same age. I'm, I'm sure you remember what it was like going to grade school during the Cold War and getting all of this crap beaten down your head about how horrible it was in the Soviet Union, how the government wouldn't allow you to think about certain things. Nobody laughed, you know. <laughs> Imagine living in a society where no one ever laughs. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff we had to hear in, in grammar school about the Soviet Union in the 70s, right? In Brazil, during the dictatorship, uh, you had all of this super pro-U.S. propaganda beaten down everybody's throats. You know, like the U.S. is the paradise. It's the utopia. It's the most wonderful place in the world. You know, everyone's free. Everyone's laughing. And, uh, and so you have like, you know, a whole generation of people in Brazil who grew up during this period when they were kind of like brainwashed into thinking they, the U.S. is this wonderful place. And they, they actually have a term for it in Brazil, which is called the, um, the Mott Complex. I mean, it, it even goes deeper. It's, it goes into racial stuff, too, because most people in Brazil are, you know, mixed African, indigenous and white or European, I should say, European descent. And 
there's this racial idea that's beaten into people that Americans are people in the U.S. are more pure, you know, and and so um, this is something that the left, you know, has spent the last 60 years fighting against on the on the side of the people on the left. A lot of them really, really hate the United States going back to the dictatorship, you know, and obviously fully aware of what's been happening with removing PT, Workers' Party from power, trying destroying the labor union movement, all this stuff. So um, historically, people on the left in Brazil, leftist intellectuals historically wouldn't even learn English. It would be like a question of political ideology to, to learn French and look towards the French academics and French intellectuals for inspiration if you're an intellectual, then learn English. Because there's so much, you know, hatred against the U.S. government. But what I've found living in Brazil 25 years is that unlike American uh, United States people, I'm saying U.S. people because in Brazil they don't like it when you use the word Americans to talk about people from the U.S. Because everyone's American in the Americas. Um, unlike people in the U.S., I think Brazilian people and people in a lot of countries I've been to around the world in the developing world are much more likely to judge a person based on their individual character than what country they come from. So like, I don't really feel like I get any discrimination or uh, of course not, you know, or any hatred from people on the left simply because I'm from the US. People separate the government from the, from the people and they, they understand that a lot of people in the US are victims of capitalist oppression as well. Could this all have happened without the New York Times reporting, without that legitimization of the establishment U.S. press? Again, you know, the paper of record. Could the arrest of Lula and overthrow of Dilma and the coup that led to Bolsonaro, could they have been successful or did they need this cover in the U.S. press and especially from the New York Times? Well, the New York Times is very influential in Latin America. You know, it's it's interpreted as a sign of the State Department's wishes, really, by a lot of you know people who really pay attention to this. And there was a there's this journalist from the New York Times, this hack named Larry Reuter, who did this front page hit job against Lula in 2004. Um, it was called something like "President's Tiplin Becomes a National Concern," and the argument was that. Lula was such an alcoholic that it was affecting his ability to govern. And it was based entirely on like one conversation with an 83-year-old political rival of Lula's who died a few months later, who was obviously losing his capacity to formulate a rational argument. And when that article was published, you know, Brazil's investment rating dropped. Brazil's stock market kind of um, almost crashed. It, it was really bad for the economy of the country. And then they, the New York Times had to apologize and everything. I mean, it became this incident because it was obviously uh, uh, an example of slander, right? Um, so the New York Times has a lot of influence. I don't know if the New York Times could have stopped the coup from happening or stopped Lula from his political 580-day political imprisonment on trumped up charges that have now been dismissed. I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. If they had done, if they'd published a few investigative journalism pieces 
about what was really happening in Brazil, the odds of Bolsonaro being in power right now would be a lot lower. I will say that. And so I, I personally hold them, you know, at least partially responsible. And I implicate them in the rise of uh, fascism in Brazil and all of these deaths, all of the indigenous people who are being murdered right now through mining operations opening up in indigenous reserves and the COVID deaths, which are um, disproportionately targeting Afro-Brazilian people down here and and, uh, and indigenous people. So I, 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 they definitely have partial responsibility for this. In your more recent article at Brazil uh, Wire, and what might be the oddest twist to this whole story, you write a Brazilian Senate inquiry has just been filed demanding clarification from Foreign Relations Minister Ernesto Araujo on what role, if any, the federal government played in Congressman Eduardo Bolsonaro's participation in a January 5th meeting in Washington, D.C., the meeting which is being referred to in the U.S. media as a War Council was allegedly held to plan the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol and was attended by Donald Trump's sons, Rudolph Giuliani, Mike Lindell, Sidney Powell, and other key players in and allies of the Trump administration. Now, Eduardo is Jair's third son, so he is to the current president of Brazil as Eric Trump is to the former president of the United States. Eduardo is Jair's Eric Trump, the most talented of all the Trumps. Is there any evidence of what was discussed at this meeting in D.C. on the day prior to the U.S. Capitol siege? Has any more, have any more details come out about it? Well, um, first of all, the difference between Eduardo Bolsonaro and Eric Trump is Eduardo Bolsonaro is a federal congressman. So that's why there's this investigation underway. Like, did did the Brazilian State Department know that, was this an official visit to this War Council meeting? You know, did they know he was going to go to that meeting? That's what they're investigating right now. Um, well, we, what we have, you know, is circ- a lot of circumstantial evidence that's, that's interesting, right? Like, especially on a podcast like this radio show uh, for speculation, which is that, first of all, Jair Bolsonaro waited until after January 6th to acknowledge Biden's victory. Like before January 6th, the Bolsonaros were like, it's not over yet, it's not over yet. And a lot of these um, fake news generating operations that Steve Bannon helped set up with the Bolsonaro allies and stuff in Brazil were repeating this stuff. There's gonna be a big uprising on January 6th. Like I do a web TV program with Natalia Urban in Portuguese every Monday on this channel called Brazil 247. And we had, you know, Bolsonaro trolls trolling us in the comments section during our broadcast talking about this January 6th uprising that was going to happen before it happened. (laughs) So, I mean, like a lot of people on the Brazilian right were just saying, oh yeah, Biden's not going to take power. So I think that's somehow got to be related to Eduardo Bolsonaro going to that meeting. You know, but that's circumstantial. It's not like I don't have anything that proves that. I'm just speculating. On the uh, Operation Spoofing Telegram links, you write that they have already been ruled admissible by the Brazilian Supreme Court and powerful forces in both the Brazil and the U.S. government would rather that body of compromising information stay under wraps. What? Uh, I'll let you speculate again. What might those tapes mean for the U.S.? What could it reveal? And would it make any difference as none of this is actually 
being reported in the U.S. media anyway. Well, I, I won't even speculate here. I'll say one thing that the defense team released that's an actual piece of conversation is that the day that Lula was imprisoned, Dalton Dalignol was um, referred to that incident on Telegram to the other Lava Jato prosecutors as a gift from the CIA. Remembering that one month after taking office, Bolsonaro became the first standing president in Brazilian history to visit CIA headquarters in Langley, West Virginia, with his new justice minister, Sergio Moro, who was the judge in the Lava Jato investigation. So, like, I think that knowing that six terabytes is a lot of information, this moron, Dalton Dalignol, didn't erase his telegram conversations once in five years. Right. And uh, so that thing about being a gift from the CIA is probably just scratching the surface, especially since we know that there is a legal partnership between the U.S. DOJ and the public prosecutor's office in Brazil. Legal. I mean, you can read about it on their own Web page that enabled them to collect three point five billion dollars in fines just from Petrobras in the U.S., you know, and that knowing from the leaks and things that there's evidence of illegal collaboration, for example, meetings every 15 days for several years between the Curitiba Public Prosecutor's Office, which is the Lava Jato Task Force, and a group of 18 FBI agents led by Leslie Bakshis. We, I mean, we know about this stuff. So imagine, and this, this stuff from the FBI just came from the 56 gigabytes that uh, Walter Delgatti, the hacker, gave to Glenn Greenwald, but there's six terabytes of it. So we, we know that they're just scratching the surface with this. And this is why I'm convinced that they're not going to reopen any, um, I hope at least, I'm, I'm strongly, I have a strong opinion, which the defense lawyers have also shared with me, that the odds of them restarting an investigation into Lula uh, before next year's elections are almost zero because of this, because it's just it would just open too much. There's too much information already coming out that's incriminating the U.S. government and the and the Brazilian Supreme Court and the military. You also write that Lula is now a free man, free to run for political office, but there's definitely going to be a pushback. So first, I'm curious how harsh that pushback has been, and secondly, how likely is it? in your opinion, that Lula will become president of Brazil again? Well, uh, one of those questions is easy and the other one's hard. The pushback, for example, today, Folha do São Paulo newspaper, which is the biggest newspaper in Brazil, uh, which supported the coup against Dilma Rousseff and it supported Lula's political imprisonment, but it's kind of like broke from Bolsonaro since then. They published this poll they created that shows that 57% of Brazilians think that Lula should, Lula's trial should be restarted. It seems like a fake poll, um, but that's an example of like, because it may be not a fake poll, but it's very easy to manipulate polls in a way that you can generate a certain response. I mean, as a, someone who got his master's in sociology at Loyola and studied a lot of polls and construction stuff, I bet if I took a good look at it, and I just saw it in the paper so that I could deconstruct how they manipulated this poll result. Um, uh, in terms of Lula becoming president, 
If there are, you know, free and fair elections, he would be president probably in the first round because there's a lot of love for him. He lifted, you know, 36 million people out of poverty, doubled the size of the free public university system, um, guaranteed equity, him and Dilma Rousseff, his successor, racial and class equity in the public university system. So now it's 50 Two percent of the students are Afro-Brazilian, and you know, there's a and just you know, gave people a lot of pride in the in their country. Brazil was made it up to sixth richest country in the world while he was president. Now it's twelfth again, which is what it was before he became you know president. So, and uh, just him coming back onto the scene and giving this press conference last week was amazing. Like the day he gave his press conference. Bolsonaro just came on Facebook Live later just shaking. He was so nervous, you know, wearing a mask for the first time in months and fired his health. He's already fired his health minister after Lula just said, look, unlike the president, I believe the earth is round. And he was telling people using very like popular language that people without much education understand perfectly using jokes and things like that, just explaining why you shouldn't listen to the President of Brazil telling you not to wear masks and stuff. Um, so even if he doesn't run, he's going to be a major force. If there's free and fair elections, he's going to win or whoever he supports would win. So it's like a, a big moment of hope, I think, for people in Brazil and for people in Latin America in general and even the, the whole developing world that Lula's political rights were restored. Brian, I have a uh, question from hell for you, but we have been speaking with Brian Meir, an editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian works at Brazil 24-7, Brazil Wire, Telesur English. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. And our final question for you, our question from hell for you, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, Brian, is one of the things that you often hear American governments, whether it or United States governments, whether it is uh, um, Democrat or Republican, when they're discussing foreign policy, all they say they're doing is protecting U.S. business interests overseas. When you hear the United States say, all we are doing is protecting U.S. business interests, what does that mean to the people of Brazil? Well, uh, what the U.S. business interests wants, they want slaves. <laughs> you know, they, don't, they, they want to be able to pay people overseas the lowest amount of money possible to ex and make them work the most amount of hours possible to provide the U.S. with its luxury commodities like coffee and sugar and its natural resources like petroleum, gold, whatever. So what, what are the real U.S. business interests abroad? It's almost like maintaining slavery or something. That is the answer from hell. So I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks again for rescheduling. It's great to come back to the show and talking to you, my friend, and uh, looking forward to having you back on the show. And everybody should be checking out all of your work at 20, Brazil 24-7, Brazil Wire, and Telesur English. Thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Stay strong. I know it's a tough time for everyone, but it was great talking to you.
All right. Take care, my friend. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners answering so far? Jeffrey B. says, good morning, comrade, which doesn't count because it actually is the name of his podcast. (laughs) Uh, Zach N. says, any group of three or more white people speaking. David R. says, electric enema. Um. Warren L. says, squirrel. (laughs) Fabio L. says, this is hell, the Snyder Cut. Garrett S. says, the Garrett Schulke podcast. (laughs) Uh, Breaking Chuck's cardinal rule there. Aaron B. says, walkie-talkie over and out with A.A. Ron which refers to the auto quality and the vibe of the show. My guests have to say over after every answer in our interviews. We stand this as hell. Like, share, subscribe, smash that donation button, y'all. <laughs> Wally R says, preserving disorder with the wet mare. <laughs> Are you okay over there, Chuck? Oh, man, I've been having some issues. Kurt e says, surf's guide to tech feudalism. Andress says, the Brooklyn PMC pod. <laughs> and finally, Matt H says, steal this podcast. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks for the support we received in the last couple of weeks from Rachel S., Kilter O., Neil C., Dwayne H., and Ann B. Thanks to all of you for showing your appreciation for and of This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In Rotten History, March 21st, 1962, 59 years ago yesterday, Sunday, a 10-year-old boy in Mexico City found an interesting and unusual object in the street. He didn't know what it was, but he shoved it into his pocket. And that's Rotten History. Oh, wait, there's more. After carrying the unusual object around for several days, he put it in his mother's kitchen cabinet. The object was, in reality, a highly radioactive capsule of cobalt-60, the type used in industrial radiography or for radiation therapy in hospitals. It should have been contained in protective shielding and transported under careful precautions, but somehow it had gone missing. In the term used among nuclear professionals, it was, quote, orphaned, meaning nuclear professionals anthropomorphize uranium. And I don't know what to think of that other than it's just freaking weird. About a month later, the boy who found the uranium died, having received a lethal radiation dose of some 5,000 rads. His mother died three months later in July of that year. His two-year-old sister died the next month in August, and his grandmother died a couple months after that in October. But the boy's father, who got a smaller dose of radiation than the other family members, managed to survive. There's also a Star Trek Next Generation episode based on the incident in a data-centric episode, but only an anorak would know that, or what anorak means for that matter. In Rotten History, March 25th, 1965, 56 years ago this Thursday, a civil rights activist named Viola Liuzzo was shot dead on Highway Route 80 west of Montgomery, Alabama. Liuzzo was a 39-year-old mother of five from Detroit, who, while growing up poor in the South, had noticed how she and her family, who were white, were allowed privileges not enjoyed by their neighbors who were black, so I'm sure she was just virtue signaling. Later, after marrying and starting a family in Detroit, she was horrified by the racial segregation and violence there, and she became active in the NAACP, so Whitey was trying to be all woke. 
1965, after civil rights marchers were attacked and beaten by police on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, Liuzzo drove all the way to Selma in her Oldsmobile to help meet and transport volunteers from around the country who were arriving at airports and transit stations to take part in further protests. Typical, typical privileged activist. Lizzo was on her way from Montgomery to Selma with 19-year-old Leroy Martin, who was black, which sounds so politically correct. When four KKK members in another car saw them together, pulled up alongside, and while she was driving, shot Lizzo in the head. Her car crashed in the ditch. Martin was unharmed but covered in blood. He survived by playing dead when the clan members circled back to look at the wreck before driving away, which is such an act of unbelievable cruelty. One of the Klansmen was actually an FBI informant, oh, now it's believable, who would later testify against the others in court but did not stop Liuzzo's murder from taking place. Liuzzo's murder made headlines and her funeral in Detroit was attended by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and NAACP Director Roy Wilkins and Teamsters President Jimmy Hoffa, among others, in the weeks that followed, Klan members burned a cross on her family's lawn because, of course, they did. Liuzzo's children endured racist harassment at school. Hey, free speech, right? And FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover falsely accused her of having been a heroin addict and a communist. And can you believe these politically correct social justice warriors want to use their cancel culture to take Hoover's name off of the FBI building just because Hoover called a civil rights activist who was murdered by the Klan with an FBI informant present, a communist and heroin addict, without any evidence of truth to either statement? Eesh, cancel culture is the worst, especially when it cancels the life and death of Viola Liuzzo by promoting Hoover's culture of a glorified police state. Finally, in rotten history, May 27, 1977, 44 years ago this Saturday, a complicated set of circumstances, including bad weather and communication breakdown, led to disaster at Tenerife in the Canary Islands. The small airport was unusually crowded with large airplanes, including two Boeing 747 jumbo jets, which had been diverted from the larger nearby island of Grand Canaria due to a terrorist bomb threat. So, small airport overcrowded with jumbo jets because of a terrorist threat elsewhere. Got it. As the plane sat on the ground waiting for permission to fly, a thick bank of fog set in, drastically, dramatically reducing visibility. Yikes. Captain Jacob Van Zanten of the KLM 747 was impatient to get airborne, which is not a good quality for a pilot, and he misinterpreted a message from the control tower as an okay to take off, probably something just flashing a fascist symbol. He powered his plane down the runway at full thrust, only to see, to his horror, the lights of a Pan Am 747 emerge from the fog on the runway directly in front of him. It was too late for Van Zenten to stop the heavy momentum of his own speeding airplane, so in desperation he pulled back hard on the stick, hoping to get his jet airborne in time to just miss the other 747 and instead fly over it. It did not work. The two jumbo jets met in a horrific explosion and 583 people were killed, including everyone aboard the Van Zanten jet. Only 61 people survived on the Pan Am airplane. To this day, it remains the most deadly disaster in aviation history. And ironically, it happened on the ground. So for those of you who have finally overcome your fear of flying, did you know the real danger is taxing? And... You're welcome. 
That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's, Wednesdays, Thursdays, you know, any of this week's guests. No. (laughs) I'm hoping people write me back soon. Well, let's hope we all find out within the next couple, three hours. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Brian Meir, our guest for rescheduling. Alex Jerry for putting up with me not being here for a week. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.